All right. So we've hit this passage of scripture now here in the book of Exodus where we're going to read about the description of the tabernacle and the things that go in the tabernacle, the implements, or they're often called the furniture inside of the tabernacle. As God has given his law, the Ten Commandments, and then this string of a few chapters of several various laws, he's reestablished the covenant. And now we get into these nitty-gritty details. And if you read ahead, you're thinking to yourself, is Pastor Phil really going to read these passages of Scripture out loud? And I am. I'm going to try. I've worked on my speed reading this week. So that, no. Because the story of the tabernacle is actually this incredibly interesting piece of the puzzle to God's plan with his people. With all that he has done, the, the plagues and the releasing from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, his appearance on Mount Sinai, all of these things, the tabernacle continues to put together the puzzle of God's plan and design for his people. After saving them from slavery and bringing them to Mount Sinai, God now has them build a mobile tent designed for worship and sacrifice and designed especially for the presence of God among his people. It's going to go with them throughout the wilderness, which is going to end up being an entire generation of people before they are brought into the promised land. The tabernacle is carefully and skillfully made. It's not just a tent. It's a tent with a lot of specific design to it the way it's crafted and put together and what's in it and how that's been put together. It becomes this model for the temple that's going to be built later on. So everything we read now in this passage of Scripture becomes this architectural and theological model for what Solomon is going to build later on amongst the people of God as time moves on. So we're reading important stuff, stuff that uh, the people of God hang on to for all kinds of reasons, for hundreds of years. And it isn't just the tent itself, it's the furniture that goes in it. God designates a handful of very important items, how they will be built, what they are for, and where they fit, where they go inside of the tabernacle. So this morning, we're going to try to get a feel for the tabernacle itself and its role amongst the people of God, especially during the wilderness wanderings. But we're going to discover, I think, very quickly that it points to a lot of other things going on inside of God's design and things that happen throughout the rest of Scripture. It's going to point both backwards in time to very early on in the book of Genesis, and it's going to press us forward, not just into the life of Jesus Christ, but into the life of the church and even further than that. So this is a fascinating piece of the puzzle of God's design. So in our passage of scripture this morning, here's some of the things we're gonna keep our eyes on as we read through this and go through this. First of all, God will wander with his people. And that's such an important thought on so many levels. He doesn't just show up, stay on the mountain and send them into the wilderness. He gives them this intricately designed tabernacle so that he will wander with them everywhere they go, and then he will dwell with them when he brings them into the land. This promise of God wandering and being with his people goes back to what was lost in the Garden of Eden 
What's promised now between God and his people and what becomes real later on in Jesus Christ. So God himself will wander with his people. We're going to see that God will atone for his people's sins. This becomes an important piece of vocabulary for us this morning. It's biblical vocabulary. It's not the kind of word that you and I use on a normal basis, but it's important that we understand what this word means and why it's important in this passage of Scripture. God atones for his people's sin. To atone for something is to take something that has been broken and put it back together again. To take a relationship where distance has been created and to make it one again. The uh, memory device that is often used is that atonement means at one meant. So God atones for his people's sins. Our sins have distanced us from God. So God then steps in and provides the one-ment, the atonement for our sin. And that purpose is symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to read about the Ark of the Covenant this morning and how it points directly to the mercy and the atonement of God. And then this final thought, and it's beautiful to me that this is our passage this morning, here deep in, deep in the details of Exodus, before we enter into the Advent season, we're going to see in beautiful ways how God is with us. This is a great way, I think, to introduce the Advent season. The God who goes to incredible lengths to be with his people and to bring us home to be with him. It's great stuff. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, we're going to go through three chapters of Scripture this morning. So hold on. I know it's the first reaction I got from Heather, too. You've got to be kidding me. Yes, it is a record. <laughs> Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Let's read this first section. How the... Sanctuary, the, the, the furniture for the tabernacle and the tabernacle is introduced with this passage. Chapter 25, verse 1, friends, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood. All of this is going to show up in the next few chapters. Oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and the breastpiece. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Speak to the congregation of Israel that they will make a contribution. Every household whose hearts are moved, this is what they will give for the building of the tabernacle. So the directions for building the tabernacle and all of its furniture begin with God calling for his people to give an offering from their abundance. The things that they have, we begin by calling from the people of God to give what they have. 
The tabernacle and all of the pieces of furniture, they're going to be made of wood. That's what's going to be sort of the skeleton, the, the, the substructure for all of this. But it's going to be covered in precious stones and metals and expensive fabrics woven in special and important ways. And all of that's not going to materialize from nowhere. It's going to come from the offering amongst God's people. So where does a slave nation wandering in the desert get onyx stones and gold and sapphire and important linens and threads? And all, where do they get all of this stuff? Do you remember back in Exodus chapter 12, as they are leaving Egypt, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to command that you then ask your Egyptian neighbor as you walk out for all of their expensive stuff. Everything that is their wealth, you're going to ask them for it, and they're going to give it to you. So God takes his people out of Egypt, loaded down with the wealth of the Egyptians. Why on earth does God give these people who are walking into the desert for they don't know how long all of this wealth and all of these gifts? It's so that they can worship God. This is why God gives them these gifts. God did not give them riches, first and foremost, so that they might be rich, but so that they would have something to give when the time came. Friends, God gave his people gifts so that they could worship him in the desert. Verse 8 is beautiful. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is actually the first and most important thing that the people of God can do with whatever resources and wealth and gifts that they have is to make sure that we can gather and worship our God together. And how much more important is that, that we as individual followers of Jesus Christ bring our resources and gifts into the congregation when we wander through the desert when we walk through difficult times, it will take all of us to make this work. One of the temptations when things are going really well is for us to sort of ride on the spiritual coattails of other people, to ride on the resources of other Christians. Uh, we just show up because we know all of this has been taken care of and we just sort of wander along with them. But now they're in the desert. And times are going to be very thin and very difficult. So it's going to take all of us to make this work. As God lays it on their hearts, he says, they're going to give from what the Egyptians gave them, from what I gave them from the Egyptians, so that they can worship me in the desert. It's this beautiful truth that begins the story of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So let's begin reading again in chapter 25, verse 10. The first item that is mentioned is at the very heart of the tabernacle, and it is the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. 
two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. This is where we get our image of the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments residing in the ark. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two on one end, excuse me, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark there you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." So the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that we see is sort of the center, this this interesting piece that's at the center of the tabernacle and then eventually of the temple as well. It's a wooden box overlaid with gold and all of these other beautiful things. We're gonna have a lot of pictures this morning to help us visualize and sort of keep along with what it is that we're reading. The box itself is about three feet and nine inches long and two feet and three inches wide and deep, covered in gold and made to be carried. These rings and these poles of acacia wood that are covered in gold. The ark is going to carry initially the two tablets of stone that have the handwriting of God on them, the Ten Commandments. Over time, more things end up inside of this ark. And so if you want to read later on what ends ends up inside of the Ark of the Covenant, go to the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 9. And the writer there is making use of the image of the sacrifices and the priests and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all of these things to talk to us about Jesus Christ. And in that process, the writer there mentions what ends up inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And so we have this box that's overlaid with gold on the inside and on the outside. And then the text says, you're gonna make a mercy seat to be put on top of that box. This is a strange description to our ears because when we realize what's happening here is that there's a lid that is being created. So we would think, well, it's a lid but it is actually a mercy seat. Some older English translations take that phrase mercy seat and uh, give us the phrase atonement cover. So as a seat, God tells us in this passage, this is where I will descend and I will meet with Moses as I sit on the mercy seat. These cherubim, as they face each other with their wings outstretched, the image is, is that these cherubim are there tending to the presence of God on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim in Scripture, friends, the, the, the world, uh, the angelic world in Scripture is actually this very deep and beautiful and multi-layered thing. The cherubim in Scripture are often described 
as the angelic beings that tend to the presence of God. So we have the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Then we're going to discover later that the inside curtains of the tabernacle have been woven with cherubim all over it. So we're speaking of the presence of God with his people here. So the Ark, what's important about the Ark for us? The Ark speaks of God's law, of God's presence, and of God's forgiveness. This is where we put these stone tablets. This is how important the law of God is to us, that it's held inside of this sacred ark. The presence of God, this is where he's going to meet with Moses, and the people of God will see it from a distance. But this is where God meets with Moses and is among his people. And then even of his forgiveness, the atonement seat. It speaks of God's mercy upon sinful people. When God wanders with his people through the wilderness, he's wandering with Shocker, sinful people. <laughs> so atonement has to be made over and over. So the atonement seat goes with them everywhere they go. There I will meet with you, God says, from above the mercy seat. It's very dramatic. The ark is going to be put in the very heart of the tabernacle in a place called the most holy place. And it's where God will descend and speak with Moses and the people of God will behold those moments when God is with them and with Moses. This is the first time since the Garden of Eden that God walks with his people. In the Garden of Eden, you had that relationship. God created us to walk and talk with him, to be in this unmediated relationship with him, and that's broken by their rebellion. And God begins then to step back into our story and redeem it to atone for our sin and put it back together again. So now God, in the tabernacle, on the Ark of the Covenant, says, I will walk with my people again. Now there's still distance. Because Moses is the only one who's allowed into that most holy place. There's still distance, but the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is still with them. And God is walking and wandering with his people again. Chapter 25, let's read in beginning in verse 23. We read of another piece of furniture that's in another room of the tabernacle. There's two rooms in the tabernacle. This one's on the outer room. Chapter 25, verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around, around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as the holders of the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which you pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So now we have a table. It's just a table, but it's, again, overlaid with gold. It's made beautiful. It's practical, and it's beautiful, and it's mobile. And there are going to be all these symbols of worship and prayer, so incense and water, 
And then especially the bread of the presence. So there are plates on this table. And we, we learn later on in Scripture that the priests go in and they replace this bread every day. They go through the process of making bread, and every day they go in and they take the old bread out, throw it away, and they put the new bread in. So it's this offering of bread. We might even call it a sacrifice of bread to God because they make it, they don't eat it, they give it to God, and then it's done. But that's what's happening on side of this table. So here's what we're watching happen as the furniture is described to us. First of all, God is life itself. He is mercy. He is judgment. He is power. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And God is also the bread of life, fresh bread every single morning. This reminds us of the manna that God gives his people. And now it's symbolized in the bread that's given to God every single day. And friends, we need to start introducing something as we read through the tabernacle here. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So he hearkens back to the manna. He hearkens to the bread that's on this table that's offered in sacrifice to God. And all of this is making its way into the person and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life, he says. Chapter 25, verse 31. Another passage of Scripture, kind of like the Ark of the Covenant, that may make more visual sense to us just because we're accustomed to the golden lampstand. Chapter 25, verse 31 you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand on one side and three of it, and three other branches of the lampstand out the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made with made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it, its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So we keep reading about these details, but God reminds them the details are important. I'm actually telling you exactly how all of this is going to look how large it's going to be, how you're going to put it together. So the details to God, again, are very important. You shall make a lampstand. So this is what we have in our minds is the menorah. But the way it's described is that there is a single lampstand in the middle 
with six branches, it's called. So three on one side and three on the other. And all seven of these are going to have reservoirs like uh, built like cups or flowers at the very top of it. And this is where the oil is poured into so that while the tabernacle is in use, the menorah is lit all the time. It never goes out. So you need this constant gift of oil that goes into the menorah, the candlestick. But notice again that the menorah is both practical and it is beautiful. <clears throat> the way the tabernacle is built, there are no windows. So in the first room, there's two rooms in the tabernacle. The second small one is the most holy place of the Ark of the Covenant. The first room is the larger room that holds the table and now the menorah in it as well. So the only light in this room is the menorah. It lights up the entire place. And we're going to discover later that when the menorah is lit, what you see inside of the tabernacle is beautiful. Later on in the temple, Solomon is going to line that entire room with gold. And all these things are going to be carved in the inside of the temple. And so when that menorah is lit, the entire place is reflecting with all of this gold from the light from the one lampstand. So it's the only light in the first room, the holy place, this is what the lampstand does. It's to remain lit constantly. It's built with its own reservoirs of oil in it so that the priests can keep the oil poured inside of it. It's beautiful. It's not just made of gold, but it has all of these ornate carvings on it. And notice this as well about the golden lampstand. It reminds us of a tree and so the carvings that are on the menorah are these almond blossom flowers. I've got these two trees in my backyard. There's, a, there's a, uh, an apple tree and a fig tree. And one of my favorite times of year is when those things begin to blossom. They're tiny little flowers, but these trees just fill up with these tiny little blossoms. The flower itself and all of its calyxes and everything inside of it and God says, I want you to cover this thing with these almond blossom flowers. So it's beautiful, and it reminds us of the life of a tree. It's beautiful, and it's the only light that's in this room. John chapter 8, verse 12, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, the only true light and all of our existence is Jesus Christ. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. So it's foreshadowed in the way the golden lampstand works, why it's constructed the way it is, why it's put where it is. It's intended to foreshadow Jesus when he comes as the light of life. Well, we're going to keep reading because we're reading all of, all of, this is all one piece. These three chapters are all one piece, the tabernacle and the things that go in it and how they work. So in chapter 26, we're going to start reading about the building of the tabernacle itself. And because there's, you know, a lot of scripture to read and there's a lot of dimensions and there's a lot of explanations about curtains and sockets and rings and poles and pieces of wood, as I start to read, I want us to have a handful of things in mind as we go. 
First of all, the tabernacle itself, the tent, has this wooden frame. And it's not just vertical pieces and the horizontal pieces where essentially the the roof is going to be draped, but it's actually held together like a lattice. So even as it goes up, it's this beautiful structure. There are these sockets that the scriptures speak of, and they act like mobile footers. So everywhere they go, they put these sockets in the ground, and that's where they're going to drop the pieces of wood, build the frame, and then overlay it, and then the tabernacle is put together. And the sockets are made of silver, and they are made of bronze. And friends, again, these details, I'm going to give some of this to you to spend time with, but everything about the tabernacle is leading us to Jesus Christ. The sockets in the ground are either made of silver or they're made of bronze. And in the Old Testament, silver is always the price for spilled blood. Bronze is always a metal that speaks of the purification by fire. All of this going into the building of the tabernacle. These are the things that we're going to read. The curtains themselves, there are several layers to the curtains. The innermost curtain is this intricately woven, beautiful thing. So if you're inside the tabernacle, you see the beauty of what's woven. Then outside of that, there's a layer of goat's hair. Not quite as beautiful, but if you're wandering through the wilderness, it's really good for protection. Then outside of that, you've got this layer of leather. So we're protecting the tabernacle, and we've got a way to actually wrap it up and carry it with us when it's time to go. So let's read chapter 26. I'm going to read the first few verses. Verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine-twinned linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be of the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain on the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain on the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set, and the loops shall be the opposite of one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits, and eleven curtains shall be made of the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. In the sixth curtain, you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of one curtain at its outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is on the outermost of the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze, And put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And at that part remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall be hang over with the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other, God is very specific, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and this side to cover it. And you shall make for the tents a covering of tanned ram's skins, and covering of goat skins on top. It's a lot of detail, but it's actually how God intends this to be built. He's already told them a couple of times, you're going to build this 
according to the design that I give you on the mountain. Now, what happens if you keep reading through the book of Exodus, we get through all of these things, and then we go through the story of uh, Aaron and the golden calf, and God saying it resets in the giving of the Ten Commandments. And then the rest of the book of, the, uh, book of Exodus is the actual building of the tabernacle. So sure enough, they do exactly what God tells them to do as they put this thing together. Back in chapter 26, beginning in verse 15, he gives us more direction as to what's going to happen here inside of the tabernacle. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half and the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So, sh so shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side and 40 bases of silver shall you make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners in the tabernacle. In the rear, they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them, shall they shall form two corners. I'm glad Moses is getting all of this, by the way. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side in the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the other side for the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle of the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for the holders of the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. So it's a frame for a tent that's overlaid with gold. Then you, you, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. This describes... The curtain or the veil that's essentially two-thirds of the way back inside of this tent that separates the first room from the second. The first room is the holy place where the menorah and the table and the incense are. And the second is where that Ark of the Covenant sits behind the veil. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their, hook, their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. It's practical. It's beautiful. It's made with skill. In fact, something's going to happen 
in the text in the book of Exodus, when the process of actually building this begins, God says, there's a few individuals that I've laid my hand upon, and they are skillful at all this. They know how to do all of this. So get them to lead the team to make this the way that I showed you to make it. And when God describes these craftsmen, it's the first time in Scripture when we are told that God fills someone with his spirit. They are filled with his spirit to do what? To build. It's a beautiful thing. And it's an incredible thing what happens here in the tabernacle. So here the tabernacle is being built, and this is where the ark is going to go and where the priests are going to do the work. And the menorah is lit, and the bread is changed, and the incense is burnt, all of these things. The second room, the Holy of Holies, is going to become that place as God develops this story with his people where the high priest only goes once a year in the process of making a sacrifice for the entire nation. The sacrifices happen on a daily basis, family by family by family. But once a year, God says the high priest is going to make a sacrifice for the entire nation. And he's the one who's going to go behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant is. And that happens biblically on the Day of Atonement. So all of this is deliberate on God's part, the way that he's constructing this. In the wilderness, the most holy place is where the presence of God, he said, I will sit there and I will dwell above the mercy seat, and I will talk to Moses, and I will give him the commands for you. So this is a lot of detail. It's a lot going on here. It's a complicated thing. The pictures help us a lot <laughs> because we read this and we think, they knew exactly what was going on. God says, this is the plan. This is how you're going to build it. Before we hit a couple more details, I want us to sort of back away just a little bit and get a little bit more of a 30,000-foot view of what's happening here with the tabernacle. Even though this is temporary, even though it's a tent, and even though it essentially just serves its purposes during the wilderness, the tabernacle acts as this focal point for God's promise amongst his people. And the structure, and God has said now three times, you're going to build it the way I tell you to build it. You're going to use it the way I tell you to use it. And sure enough, when Solomon builds a larger temple, he takes the same plans, he makes it larger, and he builds another temple. Later on in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, after Solomon's temple has been destroyed, they build another temple and they use exactly the same plan. So these plans don't go away. What we're reading is actually important to the people of God for a very long time. So here's what's happening. The tabernacle is the architecture of theology and hope. It is the architecture of theology, the presence of God, the act of sacrifice, the act of atonement for sin, of God himself making atonement for sin, the act of sacrificing for sin, the shedding of blood, the forgiving of these things, God's presence among his people. It's the architecture of theology, and it's the architecture of hope. I was with you face to face in the garden. Your sin broke that. But now you're going to build this, and I will wander with you, and I will be with you, 
even through the wilderness. And when you go into the land, I will dwell with you there. This theology of hope is built into this physical tent, the tabernacle. God will not stay on the mountain. You know, they, the people of God are still right now at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God has been dramatically in the top of this mountain. And he doesn't here in a few days say, okay, now you guys go ahead and go, and I'll meet you on the other side. He says, I'm going to go with you. This is what the tabernacle does. And God is with them again. He's separated from most of them by the distance of the tabernacle. You can only get so close. But they see God and they hear God as he descends and he speaks with Moses and they know their God is with them. The tabernacle is to them a physical reminder that God is with them and that he will fulfill his promises to them. God's covenant with his people, he will remain faithful to that covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's the hope of that fulfillment that they're gonna enter the land. It's going to be theirs. And there God is going to dwell with them. It's this thread, this unbreakable thread of hope and God's promises with his people. It doesn't matter what happens to you in the wilderness. I will be with you. You will sin and you will rebel, but I will bring you back and I will be with you. It is an unbreakable thread of hope that we see right now showing up in the shape of a tabernacle. So it's the fulfillment of their hope with God and it's the fulfillment of all things the return to that relationship when God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. The ark of Scripture and all that God does brings us back literally in the last two chapters of the entire Bible. There we are again. The people of God are with him. He has judged sin for all of eternity. No more sin, no more crying, no more pain. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and there is just God and his people. And the text actually says in the book of Revelation, and there is no temple because God is their light. You see, in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, there's not an individual place where God sits. All of creation is the presence of God. This is the theology of hope that's built into the tabernacle, an unbreakable thread of hope. Well, we go back into this story, God talking to Moses about this tabernacle, and we kind of watch this this tabernacle and temple thing developed through the history of God's people. The tabernacle serves its purposes, and then those pieces of furniture are brought then into the temple that David wanted to build, but God wouldn't let him. So David prepares the temple to be built. Solomon builds the temple, and he brings these implements into that temple, and when they put the Ark of the Covenant there, the ground shakes with the glory and the presence of God. But then the people of God rebel further on. On. And God takes them into exile. And you read in the book of Jeremiah, where much later on in history, the Babylonians show up and they destroy Solomon's temple. 
take the people of God into exile. And then 70 years later, another king arises. He sends them back into the promised land. And that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And what they do is the first thing they do is they begin rebuilding the temple. Then they build the city around the temple. So 900 years or so after this passage of Scripture, we read this story from the prophets that are with Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're rebuilding the temple. One of those prophets is Zechariah. 900 years after what we read here in the book of Exodus, Zechariah goes all the way back and he grabs that thread of hope. He grabs the language of the tabernacle and the temple and he pulls it into their present day. And he speaks of the dwelling of God amongst his people. You see, this hope just does not go away. So in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he says this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Rebuilding this thing that's been gone for a long time. Zachariah says, you know what, in the end, guys, it's not the stones of the temple. It's the presence of the Lord with his people. God still promises you, even in the rubble of the city, I will dwell with you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. In the history of Scripture, you then move another 400 years further, and this child is born in Bethlehem. The Messiah comes. The angel tells Joseph, who's confused by the moment, don't worry, Joseph, take Mary to be your wife, because what's happening here is by the hand of the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son, and call his name Jesus because he will atone for your sins. He will forgive your sins. And this fulfills what we read in the prophet Isaiah, the angel says. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So this thread just keeps moving its way through history into the life of Jesus Christ. And then listen to the, how this goes, guys. This is, this is great to me. This, this stuff just jazzes me. Jesus lives his life and walks and talks with his disciples as God with us. He dies on the cross. He rises from the grave, and then he ascends into heaven. But before all of that, he told his disciples, I'm going away, but I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. For the spirit of truth will come and be with you. You see, friends, God is still with us. This is the promise of God, that unbreakable thread of hope. So the apostle Paul, at one point in the book of Ephesians, as he's making sense of this to these Christians, as he writes to them in Ephesus, he uses the image of the temple that exists 
in his day. Herod's temple is this huge compound. And the courtyard is gigantic, and it has all these dividers in the courtyard. And if you were a Gentile follower of God, you could not get past this wall. Only Jewish descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob could get past that wall into this wall. But if you were a female, you couldn't get past this wall. Only the males could get past that wall. But then the, the priests could only get past this wall. And you see again how it gets funneled down again. And people still have this distance from God. So then Paul writes to the Ephesians, trying to explain what has happened in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says this. And again, listen to all this temple and tabernacle imagery. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You aren't separated anymore. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the same courtyard, members of the same household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's not just silver and brass sockets anymore. It's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, us, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are now the most holy place. Isn't that incredible? The presence of God. If you are a child of God, God literally is within you. And he is within us as we are being built together as this living temple. The apostle Peter uses the same kind of imagery and thinking of the stones, the magnificent gargantuan stones that Herod used to build that temple. He says, we're not a temple made of these dead stones that were hewn out of things. We are living stones. First Peter chapter two, he says this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of that vocabulary of the architecture and the action that happens in the temple now belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. We are being built. I want us to think of this very quickly before we read the third chapter. <laughs> Part of the promise of the temple we read this in Zechariah, is that when God dwells amongst his people, the nations come. The nations see this God and they want to become his children. So the image in the Old Testament is that as the temple functions the way it's supposed to, the nations stream to the temple to learn of this God, of, the, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it is now with us we, as the temple of God now, when we function, live the way God has called us to live, the intention is that the nations come stream to the living temple of God to know who our Savior is. This is part of our job. This is part of why God has put us together like this. As beautiful as that is, friends, there is one more detail 
we have to get to this morning. Chapter 27 sort of wraps up the story of the tabernacle and the furniture in the tabernacle, how they work. Chapter 8, 28 begins the story of the priests. But in chapter 27, let's read about the bronze altar and then the court and then the oil. In chapter 27, verse 1, we're told the story of the altar outside of the tabernacle itself in the courtroom where the sacrifices will be made. Verse 1, you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad, and the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. The horns of the altar become an interesting piece of plot throughout the Old Testament in interesting ways. The horns are probably there as a practical matter for the priests to hang the sacrifices on as they are prepared for, uh, for the offering, for the burnt offering, because there are some things you burn, there's some things that you don't, there's some things you throw away, there's some things you roast and eat. So the horns are there probably uh, as a dressing place for these animals to be sacrificed. But then they take on this theological significance as well through the Old Testament. But in verse 3 of chapter 27, you should make pots for it to receive the ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. And you should make all of its utensils of bronze because this is where the fire will be. <clears throat> you shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. It actually has to have this feeding of open air so that the fire will work. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings in its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze, and the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. So this large altar in the open courtyard where the priests will, while the temple, while the tabernacle is in use, they will work all day long to offer the sacrifices for God's people. And then out around the ring of the tabernacle, we have this courtyard, and the curtains around the courtyard are very simple. It's just white linen. Verse 9, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court, you shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long. It's pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with three pillars and their three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be of 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gates of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them and four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filled with silver their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and the height 5 cubits, with the hangings of fine twined linen bases of bronze. 
all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So the tabernacle itself, the altar that's outside, and we learn later on that there's a basin. There's two pieces of furniture outside in the courtyard. There's the altar and then this giant uh, bronze basin where the priests will actually wash themselves as they go through the process of sacrifices. In this courtyard is where the people will actually enter and make their sacrifices. This is what they see. But then God gives us this one last detail. We remember earlier on that one of the gifts that the people were supposed to give was the gift of oil. We were told with the menorah that it has to have this, these reservoirs of oil so that it's constantly lit and constantly in use. So God now reiterates that, and he speaks, of his, speaks to his people of the oil itself in verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure, beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. And the people will bring to you over and over and over pure, beaten olive oil. So the people are going to press the olives for the oil that goes inside of this lamp and the oil that's going to be for the anointing of the priests later on. I think it is important the way God describes this because all God had to say was they need to bring the oil and that's what we're going to use to light the lampstand. Because everybody knows what the process is. The only way you get that oil is you have to crush that olive. You have to break it into pieces so that you get the pit out. And then you have to roll it underneath that stone over and over. You have to crush that thing over and over to get rid of the pit, to get rid of the skin, to get rid of the impurities. You have to filter it. And so you crush it over and over until you get the pure olive oil on the other side. And that's what's used to light the lamp. They know that. But the detail that God gives us is that you're going to bring me olive oil that is pure and that has been beaten, that has been crushed. That's what we will use for the light of the temple. Friends, this leads us straight to the light that only comes from the crushing of our Messiah. The blood that comes from him is the blood that washes us white as snow, and it only comes because of his affliction, because of his suffering. This incredible passage, Isaiah chapter 53. A couple of these verses, verses 4 and 5. Surely, speaking of the suffering Messiah who is to come, surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds, we are healed. It is all because of Christ on the cross that we are healed, that we are forgiven. This is the exchange on the cross. He suffers and dies, and I am forgiven, and I am given life. That's the exchange of the cross of Jesus Christ. The people of God in the Old Testament needed to provide this oil over and over and over. It was never enough to complete the work, to finish the work, to say, we finally made the last sacrifice. You are perfect and you're pure. We never need to do this again. There is no work of human hands that accomplishes that. So they have to bring it over and over and over. So it's God who had to provide atonement. It is God who has to give us light and life because of what his son did on the cross. Heather reminded me of this passage from Charles Spurgeon as he comments on this very concept. Only olive oil was selected and it had to be the very best. Likewise, no counterfeit grace arising from natural goodness nor imaginary grace from God's priests or his spiritual ceremonies will ever serve the true saint of God. He knows the Lord would not be pleased even with rivers of such oil. We could give him over and over and over a torrent, a flood of our good works, and we know God's not satisfied with that. He's not pleased by that, for he is perfectly righteous and holy. Instead, the saint must go to the olive press of Gethsemane and draw his supply from him who is crushed on it. This is where I receive my supply. This is where I receive my life. This is where I receive the peace that passes all understanding. This is the only place I know that I, a sinner, can be saved by the crushing of my Savior. No other thing that I could ever do or we could ever do or the world could ever do for me, the saint knows that does not satisfy. But we go to Gethsemane where our Savior was crushed. That's where we receive life. That's where we receive lights. When God himself came to wander among us, to walk with us on this earth, He's the one who needed to be crushed so that we might have life. If our efforts could do it, Christ did not have to come, but they don't, so he did, and we receive life. Let's pray.